so welcome everyone. It's really nice to see all of you. Um, this begins an eight-week series, uh, eight weeks, on the uh, four basic illusions. It's not a magician trick. <laughs> We're actually going to, um, uh, and, and you won't find them uh, in any kind of um, sequential Buddhist literature, but they're certainly within the Buddhist texts. Um, but what I tried to do in this series is to look at how we fool ourselves, basically. It's a very um, direct series of talks. Sometimes, as some of you know, I'll go off into some of the uh, emotional ways we hold ourselves emotionally and the ways we tie ourselves and an obsession or controlling or different kinds of emotional patterns. Um, this series is much more uh, dr directly looks at uh, the Buddhist teaching in ways that we uh, misperceive reality. And I'm contrary to my usual uh, methods, I'm going to follow the text of my own speech rather than just go off and meander as I normally do. So if you see me looking at my notes, you know what's happening. Um, and these views are an inverted view. It's very, they're very interesting. I hope you get into them with me. Um, and uh, because it takes a critical aspect of reality to be precisely what it's not. You notice the dramatic pause? <laughs> <laughs> it says right here, pause. <laughs> so what are these four illusions? What are these four illusions? So I'll, I'll uh, read them, and then those will be the uh, four talks that I will give over the series of eight weeks. The eight weeks are interspersed with a week of discussion and homework, because these are not um, incidental uh, talks. They're talks that really encourage a kind of looking in um, depth movement uh, of our own insight. So it takes going to take a couple of weeks, I think, to, to um, begin to uh, intimate some of the depth of this. The first of these illusions is uh, taking what is impermanent to be permanent. The second illusion is taking what is inherently incapable of satisfying as satisfying. The third is taking the momentary display of the world as being continuous. And the fourth is taking what inherently lacks independent existence as independently existing. It kind of gets to the heart of things, doesn't it? <laughs> now, these four are actually a hologram they mirror, each one mirrors all the others. And they're just different perceptions of the same event that's occurring. So as we talk about this, we're really reinforcing um, a different way of looking uh, at life. And it really offers the same tools, the same um, remedy for each of these uh, illusions. Uh, the Buddha, um, never one to mix words, 
said uh, people who follow these illusions are deranged. <laughs> I'm not sure how that's translated in the Pali, but uh, <laughs> but uh, basically um, he's saying you know it's like walking upside down. We keep bumping into walls and wondering why we hurt. Um, in Buddhist terms, uh, they're they constitute ignorance. Avija is the Pali word for ignorance. And it's not a blind ignorance. This is an interesting point to me. It's, and it, it's an active resistance. It's an intentional in ignorance. It's not like we don't know it. We know it and just refuse to follow it. I mean, all I have to do is um, fall back on my, ter my word, the D word, death. We know it's going to happen, don't we? But we just refuse. We say, well, I'm not going to pay attention to that. It's a willful ignorance. And each of these illusions are a willful ignorance. An active resistance, a direct avoidance and denial of what reality is. Knowing it, we shut our eyes to it. And so we have to really look at what we get out of it, why we do that. We have to look at the whole implication of shutting our eyes. This then is the starting point for beginning to reorient ourselves to a truer life, to a one that's lived in accordance with the way reality really is, which is the whole of the Buddha's teaching. All he ever tried to do was to tap us on the shoulder and say, turn around, just turn around, turn around this way. He just encouraged us to come back to a level of reality that we have forsaken. Now, the first of these is the one focus for the night's talk, and that is um, taking what is impermanent to be permanent. And let me say that ever since I got into this tradition 25 years ago, change has been probably the most predominant word I've heard. You hear it talk after talk after talk to the point when I hear a talk on impermanence <laughs> the off switch goes on. I know that I say to myself. Well I encourage you not to say that. <laughs> because I, I maintain that we that the Ignorance on this particular issue is so deep that we just skim the surface of it. And we have to plummet much, much deeper in order to really understand what anicca, the Buddhist term for change, impermanence, anicca, transitory quality of life, really means to us in a living, dynamic living situation.
So let us not say, I know that. I know that. It seems to me as a species, we're very good at adaptation. You go back 10, 20, 30,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, we were very different species than we are today. And that as a species, we've adapted quite nicely uh, over time to sort of hone our body and mind to what we are today. But I would say that as a species, we are very poor at adapting day to day. And it's not that change only happens once every 10,000 years. We live in the midst of this enormous flux and transition, trying to maintain the status quo throughout. And most of our life, if we really look at it and are honest about it, we exert the controlling influence to maintain ourselves, to maintain our conditions. But the only way that life can get at us is for it to turn over the soil. For, it, for us to be renewed, we have to have contact. We have to interchange, exchange in every form. Our senses have to be alighted. We have to allow things to come in. We have to be open, inclusive, to allow life to alter us so that we become change, so that we are a part of the process of change, not something standing outside of change, watching it occur, which is the way many Buddhists relate to the word anicca or change. Oh, yes, and uh, yes, I've got to watch. I'm not feeling well today, but it'll go. It'll pass. And so I'll just have to wait it out. Wait out my loneliness. Wait out my anger. Wait out my depression. I'll just wait it out. So we're on the curb watching the cars pass by. And then when the cars pass by and, and a car that we like stops, oh, well, that's the one I want. I'll be happy. And we arrest it. Now why, see, I, when I hear that, I say, okay, why, why do I do that? I want to know that. I want to know why I inhibit change. So I've got a bunch of examples. <laughs> Some very personal examples, like when I was leaving uh, the monkhood. Here I was, as a monk, focusing on the reality of the world. And when I left the monkhood, a new reality set forth, a new set of conditions, a new environment. I was out of solitude. I was into interactive life. I was uh, um, having to engage in work, relationship, apartments, all the things that you have, but monks don't. You have to look for your own food. You have to buy your own food, and monks are supplied that. It's a very interesting lifestyle, but a very different lifestyle than what we lead. And it was enormously difficult, because I just wanted to have people give me things, really. <laughs> you get used to it. You get used to it. You kind of just... It's a very interesting um, turn of events, a different way to, to come out. And at one point, I hadn't worked an eight-hour job for eight years. 
And then all of a sudden I had to re-engage. And it was so difficult to re-engage, getting back and applying that. And now, after 16 years of working, I'm not engaged in the same way, and my mind doesn't stop, doesn't just disengage. I find now that I've left the, and I, I imagine this is true for many retirees, is that just because they're no longer working an eight-hour day doesn't mean that their mind doesn't continue to have the same momentum. In my case, I was the director of a hospice program, and so I was a worry ward. I was concerned about this and looked at that. And, and so instead of having patients to worry about or finances of the hospice program, I have my own finances and whether my sewer pipe is leaking or not. I still find things to worry about is the point. The content doesn't matter because the momentum of a pattern persisted. And instead of being able to move with the changing circumstances, we find that our mind generates the same pattern over and over again. Look at our patterns in terms of relationships. Look at our patterns in terms of work. Look at our patterns in terms of money. Do we think that, have we changed or altered many of those? Don't we keep finding the same roadblocks on those subjects time and time again? It shows how maladaptive we are. It shows how we resist. The mind resists change. It digs its heels in. It's most comfortable in continuity. It's most comfortable in stability of thought, stability of momentum. Some of us freeze ourselves, this is another example, in terms of a particular emotional state we're in. We may say, for instance, I'm feeling very lonely. And we freeze ourselves within that relationship of loneliness. And even though loneliness changes throughout the day, it's not like I'm desperately lonely for eight hours a day, 24 hours a day, but I keep referencing my loneliness as being a critical part of who I am. Not allowing the real movement of the different emotions that come into life to be equally defined as my loneliness. Don't we do that? Or anger, or impatience, or each of us have. And instead of allowing the whole movement of life to dissipate that loneliness, we keep focusing all of our different perceptions of ourselves on that loneliness and keep defining ourselves as that. It's very interesting. One of the things, I mean, often I hear people talk about their loneliness. Um, and, you know, if they just would uh, work and put forth some um, energy in different fields like uh, creativity or art or work or relationship or something, they would often find that that would, that would kind of unfreeze the pattern, that identification with the loneliness, and that loneliness 
would then evolve out through the uh, uh, applied use of the other energies of creativity and art, and that the whole thing could get uh, unstuck. But most of us don't do that. You know, we feel that we're stuck in our loneliness, and therefore we can't be creative, and we can't. Do that. We keep defining everything through the prism of our own attitude. But this is not a fixed quality within us. We're changing all the time. We're moving. And even if loneliness happens to be a predominant feeling we might be having at this particular point or juncture in our life, in no way means that that isn't evolving and changing also over time. And we don't have to take it so critically, it's so critically important or define ourselves so readily by it. Sometimes, over a lifetime, and as our years accumulate, the lifetime gets harder, defenses become, come in. This is another example. We get very um, set in our defense mechanisms. For instance, someone who is has had a trust, an untrusting childhood, quite likely has difficulty with intimacy and can't allow someone to come in and touch them and how they hold people at bay or arm's length. And we get stuck in holding ourselves in that pattern, keeping people just, just out there enough to be, feel safe so that we can't be touched. We can't feel the changing quality of ourselves. As long as we can keep people outside of ourselves, they can't interact and interface with us, and therefore I won't have to change in relationship to them. And we do this with many defenses. Are we in a holding pattern? Are we in a hard questions? Not easy questions. Hard questions. And again, as I um, mentioned this, and it looks like most of us are 30 plus in the room, although I did see a teenager walk in here, wherever she might be. <laughs> Do we think it's going to get easier? I, I don't find it easier at 54. I don't find it easier. I don't find it getting easier. I therefore don't think it's going to be easier at 55. <laughs> <laughs> My deduction is. <laughs> because the more complacent we get, the more unwilling we get to really allow ourselves to inter interact with life in a way. But the Dharma is interaction. Right? I mean, that's the whole of the Dharma is about impermanence. It's just not all this is impermanent and I'm permanent. That's another one of the illusions. It's all impermanent. It's always interacting continuously, all the time. It can't not be interacting. You're, we have to, we're not impervious to change. We're permeable membranes. It's just we believe in here, we hold fast in our mental concept. Our ideas remain impervious to change. 
long as I can hold on to the idea of who or what I am, then I can beat this change rap. <laughs> I can I go back and just in my cell, you see, the bars of my concept are the structure which keeps change out. And if I can just define myself as being this way or that, lonely or angry or miserable or something, then I can keep feeling the fact that I'm not always that. Which does what? It keeps me from experiencing life. In order to maintain who I am, I have to make a, an agreement with the devil. The devil of my mind. And say, all right, I will believe I am this way. I'll make that pact with my mind. I'm afraid that some of you <laughs> might have misunderstood my use of the devil. It's not <laughs> For those of you who are new, <laughs> speak of a different kind of Mara in Buddhist terms, Mara, M-A-R-A, the way the mind holds itself, the way the mind <coughs> uh, keeps itself from the truth of life. And so we have to understand how change exposes our fragility. It, it exposes us. Uh, it, it makes us um, vulnerable. Like a cork floating in an ocean. None of us want to die. None of us want to have someone close to us die. Not very many of us want to grow old. Not very many of us want our children to grow up and move away from home, even. We don't really want to lose our house, to lose our home, to lose the things that matter. None of us really want that. And there has to be a kind of tenderness to that holding, to that need to hold. But it's not as if we have a choice. It's not as if we can make that assertion on life, that assumption. We can do it. We can hide from it. Because even though it's difficult to die and to have people die, it's ultimately much more painful to pretend that it isn't going to happen. And so tonight's talk is a willingness to join hands. And that's one of the values of Sangha, is that we are here together. And we say, OK, I'll, let me join hands. I can't do this by myself. This is too difficult. I don't want to die. So when we're sitting by other people who are also going to die. We meet our fragility with others. And somehow that gives us courage. That's a very important aspect of Sangha. And perhaps that's the reason that change, for the most part, is resisted. 
because all change is an indication and a reminder of, reminder of our own limited time on Earth. And so we apply our intellectualization to life and decide that we aren't going to take part in that. And in our mass conspiracy, we will hold death at bay and we will hold change out of our life. And we will hold ourselves as we have wanted ourselves to be, regardless of what those facts may be, regardless of our annual evaluation. We will say, it's the boss, not me. If the boss really knew me, they would know whatever I want to believe about myself. And so we avoid experiencing the law of impermanence directly through our denial, our procrastination, our defenses, through blame. You know, I was a couple of months ago on TV on the news, it had uh, something about the Ethiopian famine. Those real grotesque pictures of children dying. And, and then I turn the channel to what I want to, I want to be a millionaire. <laughs> the unreality of those two worlds the mockery that one of those worlds puts on the other. Think of that. Think of that, really. It's as if the real world was this world of famine and the world of ideas and imagination and pretension and the world of hope, which I th also throw into that same mix, of my ideals. I want to be a millionaire. Doesn't make it a mockery of the real world? What do you think if an Ethiopian looked at that? What would they think? Would they think we were in touch? You see, being in touch, this whole thing is about being in touch. Now, we have to be careful with our relationship to change. Each of us find a way to hold change in our lives if we're in this Buddhist tradition and yet maintain a distance to it. And so now we're going to go into that a little bit. Nobody gets off the hook tonight. <laughs> The, the change is not the end-all and be-all of the Buddhist practice. As a matter of fact, the Buddha left home because of change. When he went out from his princely life and observed old age, sickness, and death, he realized that the castle-walled life that he lived wasn't sufficiently giving him sufficient information about how life really was.
It's said that his father eliminated anyone that's old. He just kept re <laughs> replenishing new servants, I guess. Nothing wilted or disease was ever shown to him. And so when he saw this, he said, boy, I've been missing it. You see, it's a, it's a stimulation. It's a way, okay, I've got to get going here. Something's, there's something happening here that I have closed my eyes to. And now 2,500 years later, the level of affluence that we have obtained in our own life have created a kind of princely walls for ourselves. We are the Siddhartha before the Buddhist. And we can always, you know, beautify ourselves by getting facelifts and and this crowd doesn't do that, I'm sure, but <laughs> well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but how about dyeing our hair? You know, how do we do it? How do we work in our own lives to resist that concept? To stay within our princely walls or princesses' walls. How do we do that? Because once we let the information in, then we can't say, okay, I'll only go so far with change. I'll only go to age 50. <laughs> or Jack Benny, age 29. That's, all I'll, that's where I'll stop. Then if everything changes, you have to ask, we have to ask, what is there worth holding on to? And that's a question none of us want to ask. You see, if everything changes, if everything is going to end in separation, everything is going to end in death, everything is going to depart, then what is there worth holding on to? You see how we back away from that? That's, too, that's going too far. Let me get right to the cliff and I'll look over. But don't make me jump. But this is about jumping. Change teaches surrender. It teaches accommodation. It teaches letting go. It teaches release. Release. It teaches inclusion. It teaches being affected by things. It teaches coming right up against life. Not in any way backing away from it. Because the backing away is an attempt to solidify. To make the changeless to, to deny the changeless. But we also must be careful that we don't become apathetic. Because we can say, well, if everything changes, why bother? Right? Why bother? It's going to change. Why do anything at all? He'll kick the drug habit. Just leave him alone. Why bother? It's not that. That's another kind of resignation. That's another aversive response to it. That's not full-heartedness, is it? If you're full-hearted, why bother does not come up for you. 
But we can't be stuck with change as the final answer. What kind of answer is that? I'm going to die? Well, you see, the Buddha goes to the changeless, to the deathless. And that's not where we are now for most of us. We think we're in the deathless. We're just in denial. <laughs> I'm not going to die. <laughs> that's a very different deathless state. See, as long as we remain outside of change, looking in on it, we can be safe with, our, with the change, with transition. There's change here, and me, me here, and change over there. Look at everything changing. A Nietzsche, a Nietzsche. Everything's changing. I'll even look inside here. Yep, everything's changing in here, too but I'm still looking from a place that's not changing at all, aren't I? I think, well, I'm impervious to change. I'm looking in here, and I'm looking out there, and I'm not changing a bit. I'm as continuous now as I ever was. Or we can use change this way. We can say, well, I'll just wait it out. I'll just, I have my knee pain here, and I know about Anicca, change. And when that knee pain comes up, I'll go, Anicca, Anicca, Anicca. <laughs> like a parrot. It's going to change. <clears throat> It'll change. This too shall pass. But the concept can be a way of to avoid the hurt. You see? See how the concept of change can be a way to back away from it? Well, I just don't want to get too involved in it. So I'll just keep saying, well, this will change, this will change. Because I can't stand the fact that it hurts. I just have to keep reminding of myself that it's going to become something different. See how we play with this? Meditators. I've been there. So a meditator doesn't see him or self, herself away from change itself. Now we go into something a little deeper here. The question is not how to adjust change, but how to become change. Because that's what we are. question is not how to observe change and to start adjusting our life to the fact that, well, I'm going to die, I might as well get on with it, but to jump in to the running water itself, to the stream, to the movement, to be change. And as long as we reference, and this are for the In a Dharma talk, I'll try to cover, have things for everyone. And now this is for people whose practice is a little deeper. But everyone can listen to it. As long as I keep referencing in myself the way things are, have been, the way my hope of the way things will be, 
as long as I keep referencing this moment as an evolution towards something else or away from something that has been, I can't get out of, I keep seeing myself as apart from change. I just, this moment's got to evolve into something better so that I can move on and, you see? So I'll just kind of, I'm in here and I just kind of wait for the moment to, never realizing that who we are is part of that moment. The manifestation of us, the appearance of us, is the moment. It all is arising together. And therefore, it's all changing together. For me to pull myself out of that and say, wait a minute, where's this moment going and has it been and what my past and as long as I keep referencing this mixture, this soup of transition, then I pull myself out of this soup to reference it and I, I'm stuck in permanency. People see that? So how about just surrendering to it? Releasing ourselves to it. Just releasing ourselves into it. Just for, try it sometime. Instead of watching it so damn carefully, get in the middle of it. Let it be, a, surround ourselves with it. Surrender to it. Without any referencing whatsoever. And even the referencing is part of it. It's changing. Then, when we don't make any reference outside the moment, the moment is complete. And so is our freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.